You're listening to Lost in Sound, a podcast exploring music, identity, and the future. I've always believed that one of the best ways we come together is through music. And through this series, I'm looking at how music can and is bringing us together now and in the future. From my base in Berlin, we'll be meeting artists from a range of disciplines from all across the world who are drawing on music right now, some already exploring new ways of doing this. Today, I had a chat with Griff Rees. Hey, how are you doing? I hope you're having a really, really good one. Spring is here in Berlin. I'm along the canal in Kreuzberg. And I think spring arrived at about 18 minutes past two in the afternoon yesterday and decided to stay by the look of it. I hope, I hope, it laid a big egg of yellow sun over over the city and it's just bright and lovely right now i don't know if you can hear but some way off someone is playing a piano they're doing things like what a wonderful world and stuff um this piano player turns up along the canal quite often actually and and it's just a really beautiful thing during lockdown and uh, hearing these songs and just on piano by some some amazing person that just gets up and does it and I mean, I'm, I'm a person that has compulsive, continual earworm all of the time. And when I get an earworm, it just comes out of me in the form of humming and whistling and singing and whether I'm on my own in lockdown, kind of chopping vegetables or, or kind of like sometimes walking along the street. And I don't really have any control or say over what goes in in terms of these earworms or in German, they call it Ohrwurm. Um, quite often it feels like my brain has picked up a satellite frequency from a commercial radio station from the 80s and 90s that likes to play Wigfield and the Grease Mega Mix. But when I'm lucky, and it does happen sometimes, more than not, for at least two decades now, I've had the songs of today's guest in my head. Griff Reese. Griff Reese from Super Fairy Animals, from Neon Neon, from his solo albums from the films that he's directed and co-directed and a book now um so much stuff and for such an inventive creative and experimental artist i should say um one of the things that really just hits me the most is just the 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 incredible amount of melodies that 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 have kind of come over the last few decades and these have what like have 
been my theme tune so often whilst I've been chopping vegetables and walking and all of this kind of stuff. And I apologise to everyone that knows me really well because they would have experienced this. Um, we had a really amazing chat. A couple of days or a day before we spoke, I rewatched a film that he had co-directed called American Interior, which came out in 2014, uh, which is about a chronicle where he sets off to America. He finds out he's an ancestor of the Welsh 18th century explorer John Evans. And the film becomes a very, in my mind, or at least that's how I felt about it, a very uh, beautiful and... almost warning-like meditation on language and how it connects people and also otherness connected with it as well. And we spoke about this, and that was like a bit of a basis for some of the interview. Um, and when it came to talking with Griff, who's such a gentleman, um, he puts a lot of gaps, he pauses a lot between what he says and I felt once I got into the rhythm of this because there are quite a lot of silences and I decided not to cut them out because I kind of felt well that's this is what the conversation is I'm not a, you know I don't want to robotize things um, I kind of felt that he really likes to consider what he's saying and wants to make sure he says something that is accurate and represents him that's just my take anyway uh, but he's a total gent Super furry animals are often considered the last great band on creation records. In the 90s, they gave a sense of surreal adventure and a global musical palette unusual for the Britpop era. They sung, sometimes in Welsh. They were politically conscious. At one point, they owned a tank. They mixed in techno, tropicalia and a million other sonic sources. And of course, there's the song, The Man Don't Give a Fuck, which sampled Steely Dan and reached the top 20 with a song that says fuck over 50 times. Their constant inventiveness carried on into the noughties. At some point, Griff set out with a solo and collaborative body of work that seen his music grow into films, collaborations, such as Neon Neon with Boom Bip, a book and PowerPoint presentations. He's frequently called a Welsh national treasure. Now, I'm as English as a PG tip, and that's not for me to say. But what I will say is his work, his outlook and his vision have been in my life for a very long time. I'm really good. Thank you so, so much for fitting me in. I, I know how hectic um, everything must be right now. You know, it's such a, such a strange world at the moment as well. Yeah, it's bunkers. It's um, yeah, just um, everything starting to go busy again, all at the same time. Mm. How are you? Um, I'm okay. Yeah, I'm in Berlin, and um. I, I I had a bit of good news last week in that I've just been given my European visa, uh, the post-Brexit visa. So I feel oh. quite 
relaxed in that, um, which is really nice. But at the same time, we're, you know, we have a very, very slow vaccine rate here and figures are really high. And um, so it's a, it's a kind of a very mi mixed bag here, really. <laughs> but the, the sun is coming out, which always makes life a bit more. <laughs> it's a little bit of like sugar in your tea, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's great. It's um, it's a bit, bit like that here today. Mm. And you're in Cardiff. Yes. Um, yeah. Yeah, I've been living here for um. Twenty-seven years or something. Right. No. So, no, the maths is wrong. Hold on. <laughs> no, that's right. No, I think yeah, twenty-seven years. Somewhere. Right. Yeah. And and are you still working from the same studio that like was kind of glimpsed in American um, American Interior? No, I don't really have. I don't really have a studio. Um, I had an office for a, a little bit. Um, during the making of American Interior. Um, and that was amazing. I was quite organised for a bit. And then and now it's just chaos again. <laughs> Do you, do you find yourself, do you, do you kind of, you know, like how some people like to have a messy desk, do you find yourself more comfortable in a, in a kind of chaotic surrounding? Then? Um, not particularly. I don't, I don't have a desk. I mean, I've borrowed one today, but um, generally I don't even have a desk, so it's just chaos. But it's not, it's through lack of organisation, not choice, if um, if you know what I mean. Yeah, and yeah, not through design. No idea if it helps or hinders. <laughs> um, I think one thing I've always kind of felt, and I, I mean, these things could always, always just in someone's interpretation, but I've always felt like you're such an avid communicator of ideas, um, whether it's in the outputs of... Um, you know, skipping between making films, writing a book, or the different styles and, and textures of music you put in, or the, the kind of input that goes into um, kind of some of your references and some of like what the stories are about. Um, the first time I was aware of this was uh, back in the 90s when I first heard Herman Loves Pauline. And I was a bit like, this is a song about Einstein's parents. Um, and um, I was, I, I might be wrong, but it feels to me that you've got a real love of communicating ideas. Where did that, if that's true, where did that come from? Um, well, I suppose I'm, I'm just the recipient of ideas from growing up listening to records of the people's music and, um, And um, I must have, you know, have maybe reacted to that by making my own records with 
messages and ideas and um, not always coherent, but um, and um, but um, you know it's something I'm still trying to refine. Um, and figure out, um, which is maybe why I'm still making a cut and some of the projects that are sort of offshoots of those records or songs. Um, you know, um, I think of myself as a, a writer of songs and then some some of those ideas need film or, or writing to help flesh it out um, but not all of them um, but, but occasionally the record can do with using a few different mediums to help if, if it's a huge story it can be Played out over more mediums, but the but the songs are always at what's at the heart of what I do. I think. Um, and therefore, you know, have been the most inspiring things for me in terms of. working on my own ideas. Mm. How, how did music originally come into your life? Did you have, was there like a moment, like an epiphany moment or, or you sort of talking about like you, you know, it was around you, like maybe what your parents were playing with um, music on the stereo. Was there, was there like a moment that you had that kind of life changing thing? Yeah, I think, it was a combination of my brother and sister and my parents. Um, they all had records in the house. And um, I think I was taken to see bands play locally. Um, And some festivals as well. Um, so I think when they when they saw bands play live, um, I always found it really inspiring. You know, I'd, I'd try and write songs immediately after seeing something on TV or um, watching bands like uh, early seventies. Welsh language folk bands like Akerail were like a political folk boy band um, singing harmony pop, sort of radical harmony pop. Um, you know, they were really inspiring. And they, I remember trying to form my own bands and things after seeing them 
Um, and um, you know, my, my brother was trying to start bands when I was about six. He was trying to start punk bands and things. So that was really inspiring as well, seeing him and his friends make rackets with buckets and <laughs> sort of cheap electric guitars and going through hi-fi systems and um, and then um, my brother continued playing with lots of Welsh language bands who gradually got more and more sophisticated um, to the point where the I think the singer of one of the bands left a couple of Velvet Underground albums in the house when I was about 13 um, and I started to listen to them um, one of them was the the second album White Light White Heat mm. that's got the the song The Gift narrated by John Cale um, and because of his Welsh accent I presume they were a a band from South Wales, you know. Um, so I sort of accidentally got into a, a whole world of New York junkie music. <laughs> um, quite young. And then by the time I was about 15, 16, there's... Um, I mean, I... I wasn't aware of the workings of it at the time. I think John Savage has written and detailed the, the kind of uh, mechanics of the Velvet Underground revival um, in terms of when reissues came out. And, um, for example, there's a, there's a batch of reissues in the mid-80s um, when I was about 15, 16, there was a Velvet Underground South Bank show, kind of hour-long special or whatever. Um, and um, some, I think uh, the book Appetite came out by Victor Bakris and um, Um, there were a few um, reissues, um, VU and another view of, well, they were unreleased material. Mm. Um, I mean, pushed by a, a huge major label corporation. Um, but, but because of this sort of chance encounter with the records, I, I was, uh, you know, I had to read that out for Velvet Syntagram material. So, um, and that came with so much baggage, you know, like uh, pop parts and the whole world of Andy Warhol. Um, and that kind of, um, 
you know, those huge ideas of um, communication and um, questions of authenticity and um, you know, there's so much ideas wrapped up in that scene to get into and, and, and to inspire um, impressionable people, you know, that, that was that was a really um, sort of key time for me. Yeah, that, because um, was it the exploding plastic inevitable, the, um, the, the kind of like light and visual elements to Velvet Underground? Yeah, the, the whole performance aspect and um, event aspect. Mm. And, um, the kind of, um, you know, sensationalism. Um, you know, blasphemy, mm. uh, but you know, lo lots of interesting things. Yeah. yeah, a lot, a lot of the things that make art and, and ex communication exciting and and wanting to kind of communicate with each other and stuff through. Yeah, yeah, and and sort of cutting through lots of. Um, Phony layers of um, of um, enter light entertainment, you know, like just cu cutting it all out, um, stage patter and um, cutting out sort of centuries of traditional performance. Our notions of um, um, you know uh, um, skill, you know, like um, you know, with Warhol in terms of Um, you know, appropriating other people's photographs as his own. Um, you know, the you know, arguably um, primitive nature of the Velvet Underground recordings. You know, that is inspiring in a way that you. Didn't have to be a musical virtuoso um, to make music. You just needed strong ideas and a strong reason for doing it, um, and that that could supersede any any musical ability or sort of artisanship. You know that. that it was about the ideas, not the craft. Mm. Um, it's an amazing uh, 
review from the period of by um, Jonathan Richman, um, sort of praising the violence in the ground and. Um, You know, he says something like, in, in 20 years, nobody will remember cream. You know, they're just a bunch of artisans. Um, whereas the Velvet Underground are, are true artists or something. <laughs> Was that written at the time of of um, the sort of, I guess, the sort of, when that, that period of time when the Velvet Underground were making those albums, the Jonathan Richmond piece of writing? Yeah, in the, in the late 60s, he was mm. um, a super fan. Because there was that, the, the, the famous kind of, I don't know if, if, if it was something that anyone even actually said, but the, the famous line about that only about 100 people listened to the Velvet Underground, but every one of them went and started a band. Um, and, you know, just that, that kind of the way the influences kind of just, yeah, sort of spread. <laughs> um, when, it, when it comes to, I wanted to ask to, to you a little bit about language, if that's okay. Um, like um, one, Weirdly, what I think my actual favourite Super Furry's album um, is Mwang, and I'm sorry if I pronounced that wrong. Um, and I can't speak a word of Welsh. I don't understand any Welsh, but for some reason with me, the album just sounds so beautiful. And I feel maybe it's because I'm not someone that immediately connects with lyrics is my first thing. I kind of connect with the sound of words and the sound of voices. Um, how important, I mean, do you feel that music can carry a meaning across in a way that language can't? Um, yeah, I think it's an, it's an emotional language in itself. Um, and yeah, the album, it would be pronounced Mung. Sorry, no, yeah. No, no, no. It's it's great. I you know, I I fully expect <laughs> I mean I, I've no idea how to pronounce most of the records I buy anymore. Um and um it's um with with that record the it's the most simply recorded Super Fair Animals record. Um, so sonically, it, it kind of works better for a lot of people. Um, you know, with their ears attuned to... Um, I mean, it's an attempt to sort of raw songwriting, you know, played by, by a kind of live band. Um, a lot of the Super Fairy albums are sort of studio concoctions that 
kind of pop concoctions in a way that we'd work on for maybe six months, you know, um, add layers and layers and often sort of no live elements in, in terms of playing at the same time. Whereas Mung was a bit different in that we recorded it really quickly and a lot of the tracks are recorded really in a really immediate way without much overdubs. And so I think it, it, it works for a lot of people in that sense as well. But um, I, I found myself um, listening to lots of um, music in languages I don't understand. Um, and, uh, I've got a deep love of melody and, um, you know, almost to the point of sacrine melody. Um, and, um, I, you know, I can connect emotionally with with a song without knowing the full details. Um, just like you can with a, a kind of Nirvana, so you know, with the raw Nirvana songs where, where you can just hear screaming or, you know, you don't necessarily know every detail of what Kurt Cobain is screaming, but you know he's screaming and you know he's troubled and, and that's enough in a way. Um, And um, but I think I've been influenced by as well by this uh, rhythmic meter of singers who who I don't understand. Um, maybe people like Erkin Kore, the Turkish singer, um, uses vocal rhythms that uh, you know work emotionally, but that it's like. Uh, Percussion is like sort of vocal percussion as well, and, and I think of my, my songwriting has changed from listening to the rhythms of, of the languages and of the cultures. Um. <laughs> yeah, and and um, with language as well. Um, I was watching American Interior again the other night, and. Um, the sort of feeling I got the second time of watching it sort of more towards the end was I picked up on more and more about the kind of connection that's made between um, the Madoc tribe and, you know, you meet the guy that po possibly is the last person to be able to speak the Madoc language and, and the Welsh language and in terms that they're you know, there's various states of endangerment going on there uh, with these languages. Um, what is it for you that is so important about the preservation of languages? What what do the languages protect or represent? Yeah, it's, it's I suppose it's hard to, I, inter I interviewed a person called Edwin Benson for American Interior who was the last in the line of um, as a speaker, you know, born speaking the Mandan language, 
um, which had, which had, I was following the journey of a, a sort of deluded explorer in a way called John Evans, um, who's looking for a mythical, as it turned out, non-existent tribe um, descended from um, a Welsh prince called Mad Dog. Um, and that journey took him through pre-USA North America, um, and he's, he lived with many tribes, um, including um, the Omaha and um, Shanish and Mantan. Um, so you, you would have heard a lot of the Mandan language, and by the time I was following his journey, um, you know, I, I got to interview Edwin Benson, um, the last speaker of that language. Um, and um, it, it, it's hard to compare um, the Welsh language the, the the struggles of the Welsh language compared to the struggle of um, cultures that have gone through genocide. So I, I wouldn't want to generalise them. Um, you know the the, the I wouldn't want to generalise it. Um, although, even though the Welsh language is also a, a minoritized language in that it's been, you know, systematically, it's, it's kind of become from being a majority language into, to being a minority language. Um, you, you know, that's, that's the case in Wales, but we, we haven't gone through a, a kind of systematic genocide so that it's so I wouldn't want to I wouldn't want to trivialise that relationship yeah. um, you know um, but um, you know having said that being a speaker of the Welsh language and growing up in a in a Welsh-speaking area. Um, you know, a Welsh-speaking industrial area. Um, you know, I've seen firsthand the kind of, um, the difficulties, the difficulties of maintaining a culture under the the strain of um, you know mass capitalism and um, the uh, commodification of housing and um, So, so, so I am attuned to uh, to uh, communities 
going through similar or uh, you know in the case of American interior maybe this similar circles uh, and um, gr uh, growing up I was always surrounded by the political circle for often basic rights for the world's language um, uh, undertaken by um, campaign groups like the Welsh Language Society um, who are also uh, gig promoters so they were they were putting on a lot of the shows I would have been good to see as a teenager um, a lot of my sort of first bands would have played gigs organised by activists rather than professional promoters um, and people like the Welsh Language Society would also work in conjunction with the anti-apartheid movement or um, the anti-nuclear movement or um, the movements for the minor strike in that period. Um, so a lot of my political education has come from uh, going to shows um, by sort of Welsh language bands uh, that because of the nature of the Welsh language that it's a relatively small group of people um, it, it's hard to do anything professionally in the language because there's not that mass volume of people um, so so things are often run by activists and well-wishers rather than anyone after a quick book. Mm. <laughs> um, so that, that's shaped my, my thinking for a, a lot, lots of things. You know, I've also reacted to it, but, um, but, but that's... Um, you know, it's been really part of my upbringing. Mm. And that the kind of political and uh, elements to your music and your projects, um, I think was been quite with with the man "Don't Give a Fuck" as well, which is just such a sort of I don't know, just a sort of anthem. Really, it kind of it started out as a B side, didn't it? And um, and it's sort of I've seen the times I've seen Super Fairies play live, and it's become like the quite often the last song and the big epic techno kind of workout at the end, and and all of this, and the sort of the way the songs kind of evolved um, in in terms of like love for it, and uh, in terms of it becoming to kind of actually kind of represent and, and mean something. Um, much like you're talking about Kurt Cobain sort of screaming earlier on, it's sort of, it's just like, I mean, the man just sort of symbolizes something universal, doesn't it? That we kind of maybe fight against or something. Um, but um, from your point of view, that song and its journey from B-side to sort of end of the set, Glastonbury banger kind of thing. What, what was that journey like? What, what, how does that song feel for you? Um, when we started 
missing around as for animals around sort of ninety three, nineteen ninety three or something. We made a few demos, and um, one of them, uh, Dav, um, the for animals drummer, was a, a you know a genius and can turn his hand to anything, you know. Um, um, he had a bunch of Steely Dan records and he sort of <laughs> took these, you know, tiny few bars of a Steely Dan song. Um, you know, it's a, a, ridic- a ridiculous sample to find in a way, you know, to, to, to even consider. Um um you know he he had a, a big hunch that that would be a, an amazing sample and um we went to a friend Gorolo and studio and you know sure enough it, the sample is amazing um and it just turned into a sort of instant mantra and um, as a band, we liked hanging out in nightclubs and, you know, socially we were going to, listening to a lot of techno, going to techno clubs and uh, they seemed far more exciting in a way than, we, we, we liked going to see bands, but we could have a much more intense experience at, uh, you know, dancing all night in a, in a nightclub. Um, and we'd listen to a lot of derp um, and, and um, the following day, you know, that what was termed at the time was sort of chill out, you know, horrific term. Mm. Uh, <laughs> um, we had, you know, those really sort of spacey early 90s um, chill out mixes and... Mm. Um, so we tried to combine um, bursts of the sample with um, these mellow jams, and um, I had I had some bits and bobs of you know folk verses thrown in there. Um, but it was. In a way, it was the first. We demoed some of the songs, but they were more conventional. Whereas that felt like it um, reflected how we lived as the as a band at the time, and what we were actually listening to is like a combination of everything. So, that, so I think creating that track sort of bonded as a, as a band. Um, you know, we we felt that it was unique enough to warrant putting a band together to have an adventure around it, you know. And and then uh, as we played live, I mean, yeah, there was going to be a B-side. And then...
I think what Walter Becker agreed and Don and Donald Fagan agreed, but then Donald Fagan had been instructed by a psychiatrist to take time out. And his management didn't feel he was in the right frame of mind to be making decisions. So they suddenly withdrew um, the rights, the, the sample clearance. And by the way, I think they asked for 100%. Right, okay, yeah. And we went, well, fair enough, it's probably 100% of nothing because mm. the song with the word fuck repeated 50 times isn't going to be <laughs> made anyway. Um, and then we had to quickly record another B-side. And then Alan McGee heard it and he insisted that it was a, a single. Um, you know, that it was, he was really impressed by it. And um, he, he kind of drummed up supports for the song within creation. Um, Because um, he, he wasn't around so much at the time, because he was kind of getting better from his various ordeals. And um, but but in this case, he kind of got involved and um, we we mostly we were mostly looked after by Dick Green. Um, and Mark Bowen, who started Wichita Records um, after the fact. In any case, um, you know, it became a single, and then as we played it live, um, Kian Kiran, uh, our amazing um, sort of in band techno producer, um, you know, he just started extending and extending the song and it was great, you know, we'd, we'd always play it last and um, it would sometimes go on for 20 minutes and we'd come back on dressed as monsters. So, um, we hired wrestlers once. Um, we hired a wrestler called the Silver Machine and we brought in some uh, friends. They had a... a a wrestling contest and we, we did all <laughs> nothing to do with Hawkwind the silver machine yeah he was directly inspired by Hawkwind he'd come on uh, to the song silver machine by Hawkwind before <laughs> <I felt. laughs> um, I, I know you're um, short for time do you have time for another couple of questions or you, you, do you yeah, have to yeah. oh brilliant okay um, and and Talking about at that time as well, um, like when I first got to know Super Furries, which was kind of about that time, was sort of like 97-ish or so. Um, I remember at the time Britpop was still, it was kind of dying a little bit, but it was still very much that kind of prevalent culture. Um, you were signed to Creation Records. Um, but I think what I immediately felt that was so different about what you all were doing was that there was a real adventurousness to, and I'm not trying to kind of cast a kind of us and them situation or, or a kind of 
you against things situation, but there was an adventure as to what the music you were making that felt really different to, in terms of where it was coming from being on Creation Records to what else was going on around you. Um, did you all feel kind of connected to the 90s or did, did you did you feel like kind of you were outsiders? Um, no, I mean, we were... Um, we were trying to engage with the technology of the time and you know the the world we were living in um and Britpop was a very retrograde movement in all kinds of ways i mean it was very conservative musically um and very conservative politically you know um, at a time of, um, a, you know, a, a kaleidoscope, at, at the time, it coincided with a really kaleidoscopic time for music um, in terms of uh, techno and drum and bass and hip hop and um, you know, sort of hyperdelic, melodic um movements you know there, there's adventurous space rock and um I, I don't know people like Cornelius in Japan making sort of day glow pop and um so even though we were We'd grown up exposed to the same top of the pops shows as all the all the brick pop bands, you know, and, um, that we we we'd been influenced by a lot of the same bands and ways of writing songs as them. I think we we were you know politically frustrated by um, you know that that kind of. Um, that kind of flag waving uh, narrative, you know, um, we felt part of a wider world. I'd like to think, you know. No, I, I, I always kind of felt that as well. Like I could have, um, I think, through listening at the time, it sort of weirdly connected me onto Tropicalia as well, and 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 music like that, but that in the CD buying days, I wouldn't have been able to kind of look online and and kind of just find out about you know um and I, I always think like you know with what you're doing you know you've got a book uh that is out you know you're, you're doing uh you're, you're kind of the tour is going ahead and the album's coming out um it feels like you're always moving forward um is there a point do you do you cut work off like is there a point where you know you've mastered an album for example and then it's, it's finished and you move on, or is it? What, what's your process of moving on? Um, it's largely out of my hands, you know. Um, it, for example, I'm putting out this record, Seeking New Gods, in May, and I, 
I finished mixing it in August 2019. Um, so it, it could have been released. Um, you know, um, a year and a half ago or something. Uh, so, um, there was a pandemic and, you know, the various things that meant it couldn't come out. Um, and a record I started after starting this new record, uh, I managed to complete earlier and that came out in September 2019. Uh, record called Pang. So mm. although I recorded Pang after this new record mm. been out. So it, um I, I've learned not to get frustrated by having to sit on and release things. Um it's definitely more frustrating not being able to record something or uh if 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 I finish something, I, I don't mind nobody hearing it or seeing it, you know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, um, but, but uh, I've got I've got a few things that I've been trying to get out since, you know, over a decade, and I haven't managed it um, for various reasons. Um, I don't mind so much, but um, yeah, it seems largely out of my hands when, when things can be released and be seen. <laughs> but it, but it's so it's definitely more the, the process that is, is the thing that you you're engaged with. Yeah, um, and uh, you know, I've got a busy domestic life and uh, kids and things that I have to do, and I I don't get much time to work on my own things in a way. So when I do, I um, you know, I really enjoy it and train. You know, I, I could just. Um, you know, I'm really happy when, when I get the chance. Yeah. And does that make you appreciate the time that you have to, to make stuff? Does it concentrate the time in so you get more stuff done because you know you've got, um, you know, the family and a full life elsewhere? Yeah, I think so. It, it adds some urgency to it and um, and you know I, I appreciate every moment in a way yeah Griff thank you so much thank you I think that's the questions that I've got so um, 
Thanks so much for giving me time. I know how hectic everything must be right now. And I really appreciate you making that extra bit of time for me today. Yeah, I enjoyed the, you know, the, you know, what, what I heard the, of the shows. So um, it, I really wanted to do it. And uh, yeah, keep, keep. Oh, thanks. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, brilliant. Have a, have an amazing afternoon and take and take care. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Hey. So that's Griff Reese talking with me on Lost and Sound last Friday. I don't didn't actually write down what date that is. Sorry about that. Um, but it was if you're listening to it the week this episode the week it comes out, it was last Friday. Um, if you're listening to it in the future, it was on a Friday. Um, thank you so much, Griff, for speaking with me. Um, Resist Foley Encores, the book is out now and he's doing some socially distanced tours towards the end of May for that. Seeking New Gods, the new album, is out on May the 21st. Thank you so much, Griff. Um, as you can hear, there's a lot of... It's midday here in Berlin, and you can hear the bells. Uh, the bells of middayness going on. Um, I can't hear the piano player anymore. Uh, maybe the piano player um, has turned into a giant bell, and that's that's then them now doing a sort of kind of gothic Steve Reich thing. Um, I hope you're having an amazing one. Um, back next week take care keep safe lots of love listening. Lost and Sound is written and produced by me, Paul Hanford. Title music by ESO. And a big thanks to Kieran Yates in the UK for mastering the levels. And this episode is being hosted by Bear Radio. And you can check out other English language podcasts from Berlin by going on bearradio.org. And if you enjoyed listening, please hit subscribe and leave a comment. It really does help. And you can also help the production costs of making Lost and Sound, if you wish, by buying me a digital coffee at coffee.com. There's a link in the socials. Take care and speak to you soon.